<clears throat> the Puritan William Colonel once said that true peace is the blessing of the gospel and only of the gospel. This will appear in several kinds of peace. And he says, firstly, peace with God, the peace of reconciliation. True peace is the blessing of the gospel and only of the gospel. And when we think of that great peace that he mentioned of reconciliation, the glorious theme, the glorious theme of the reconciliation of the sinner to the God of heaven permeates Ephesians chapter 2, as we have already considered in some part this morning. The term reconciliation refers to a restoration between two parties that have been at conflict one with another. The gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a gospel of reconciliation. And we are reminded of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the verse 19, where it says, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is reminding these believers of the reconciliation that they have with God. They were dead in sin, chapter 2, verse 1. They were far from God, and we see that again in chapter 2, verse 13. They were far off, but they are now brought nigh by the precious blood of Christ. And these truths are encouraging to these believers. These Ephesian believers found themselves living in what was the commercial and political and religious center of Western Asia. They were situated near the Aegean Sea. And Ephesus was a city, like many cities in that day, devoted to paganism, like many cities today, we can say as well. And it was devoted specifically to the goddess Diana. The temple of the god of fertility was found in that place, also known as the Greek god Artemis. It was a city that was known for its wickedness and its sin and its idolatry. And the apostle Paul, we find, labored there for three years. He laid the foundation for a thriving Christian church. He had a strong affection for this church. And we read in Acts chapter 20 of his meeting with these elders at a place called Miletus. He gave them a final discourse. And he says in that chapter, they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. There was a great bond and a love between Paul and between these believers. In Ephesians chapter 1, the verse 16, we also read of Paul who ceases not to give thanks for them in his prayers. There is a love here. There is a bond here. These individuals he is writing to, this church he is penning this epistle to, were those who were like him, as we said this morning, dead in sin, but like him had that new life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he exhorts these believers to spiritual unity through Jesus Christ. And he does not hesitate to show to them what the Savior means to him. 
This epistle has been called many things over the years. The believer's bank, the Christian's checkbook, the treasure house of the Bible. Some have referred to this book as because it outlines the great unsearchable riches of Christ that are found in the gospel. In chapter 2, Paul commences, as we have seen on a previous occasion and this morning, with the sinful state of man. He outlines then what exactly our redemption is through Christ. We are sinners. We are dead. There is no hope for us but Christ. Christ steps in. Christ redeems us. Christ saves us. In this chapter, Paul makes uh, these thoughts personal to these believers. In verse 2, he speaks, where in time past ye walked. In verse 1, and you hath he quickened. In verse 11 as well, he speaks, wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. In verse 13, we have that as well. Ye who sometimes were far off. And what's he doing? He's speaking personally to these individuals. He's directing his attention and his thoughts and his words and his doctrine and his application to them. This is not just a chapter of doctrine, but it's a chapter of doctrine that is directed personally to the Ephesian believers. And here we see something of what preaching ought to be. We see something of what biblical instruction ought to be. It's directed personally to those who are the recipients. Here Paul brings this to them. He brings it personally. He, he speaks of their faith. They've been delivered from paganism and from corruption. They've been separated and set apart unto God. He tells them that they were once Gentiles, far removed from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, strangers to all the things we see in the Old Testament that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They had no hope. They were without God in this world, as we see in verse 12. But then in verse 13, we have another glorious but now, like we have in verse 4. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And verse 13 describes then this great change that there is between the sinner and the saint. And while thinking on this verse, our thoughts can be drawn to the question, do we fully understand, humanly speaking, what our salvation is? Do we treasure it? Is the Lord Jesus Christ, believer, precious to you as much as He ought to be? Sometimes among the people of God, there's a tendency to neglect or fail to realize what we are in Christ. How we've been saved and redeemed and delivered and how glorious that is. Perhaps we do not see the great blessing that we have through His great plan of salvation. When we think of these Ephesian believers, like us, they had trials and temptations and the attacks of the devil. And Paul brings them to consider their sinful state in times gone by, and then to contemplate what they are now. And he wants them to realize, and he wants them to know what they are in Christ, what Christ should mean to them. And that is a vital part of our faith, knowing without a shadow of any doubt what our standing is in our Savior, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. And so this evening, I want us to consider the subject brought nigh to God, brought nigh, brought near to God, or perhaps more specifically, reconciliation through the blood. That is what we see here in verse 13. Reconciliation through the blood. And I want you to see, first of all, that reconciliation is an indispensable act. It is an indispensable act. In verse 13, we have those words, made nigh. They can be termed as brought near. Brought near unto God, brought nigh to God. There's a reconciliation taking place here. And what does it mean to be brought nigh? It has nothing to do with location. It has nothing to do with distance. I could be brought nigh to you tonight, or you could be brought nigh to me. What does that mean? Well, physically, it means you're coming into the pulpit. Hopefully not uh, to slap the preacher or to kick him out of the pulpit, but that's what it would mean. You would be brought nigh. You'd be brought near to the pulpit. But here, it is not speaking of a location or a distance. It is not speaking about coming, not, coming from earth and going to heaven, but rather it is speaking on a spiritual basis. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You're brought near spiritually to God. There was a separation because of sin. There was a separation and a division because of sin. But now, on a spiritual level, this broken relationship, this alienation from God has been changed. It has been changed. And we see the great unity then that Christ brings to the believer. Christ brings this unity. And in Galatians chapter 3, we see these words, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And here, Paul speaks to the Galatian church of a unity, a unity that takes place because of Christ and through Christ, a unity not merely between the individual sinner who has been redeemed by Christ, but there is this great unity between all of us and Christ because we have been converted and we have been saved through Christ. The people of God have a great reason for unity. There's no doubt about that. Yes, we may have different views and opinions that sadly can divide us. But yet, when we think of the great fundamentals of the gospel, there is much to unite us. When we think of what Christ has done, when we are, as Scripture says, all one in Christ. And dear believer, this verse we have this evening is a verse that speaks of the unity that we have with Christ and the unity we have with one another and the love that we ought to have for one another. We saw this morning about Christ's workmanship in us and how uh, because we're all of Christ, 
we ought to encourage one another in that workmanship and pray for one another in that workmanship. It is God's work, yes. But let us encourage it. Let us desire it. Let us pray for that work in others. Why? Because there is this unity, this great bond between us. We belong to the Savior. And that is something we need to remember. I remember hearing many years ago of a joke. I certainly don't quite agree with this joke, but it spoke about all these believers from the Northern Ireland context, believers who had disagreements and didn't get on, and how there were different levels in heaven for all these believers. There's no such thing. In heaven, there is a unity. There is a unity. There is not a Presbyterian level or a Baptist level or an Anglican level or whatever it might be. There is one heaven. There is one Christ. There is one salvation. There is one people united to Christ. There is one church invisible, all gathered together in great unity. And we need to remember that because in heaven there will be this unity between us, a perfect unity because of Christ, a perfect unity in Christ. Let us remember that here below because we are all one in Christ Jesus. As much as we could say about that, our love for each other, our interaction for each other, our tenderness and kindness and care toward one another because of this unity. And it is a unity that is spiritual. Again, it's a spiritual unity in view here in verse 13. And it's a spiritual unity with those who were once far off but have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And coming into what this text means in the sense of this reconciliation being indispensable, this reconciliation of being brought nigh to Christ is indispensable because of our sin and our wickedness. We need to be reconciled to God or our souls will be lost. Sinner tonight, you need to know this reconciliation. You need to know this peace with God. You need to know the ending of that conflict. I've seen much about the election here in the province. I can't vote. I'm not allowed to vote. And I, I get text messages asking who I'm voting for and would I vote for the NDP or the UCP or whatever it might be. And I'm thinking, well, I can't vote at all. And so if you want to fast track my citizenship so I can vote, go on ahead. But I've seen many things. I've been on YouTube. I have been on Facebook. And constantly you see things from the various parties. It happens in Northern Ireland too. But you see one party criticizing things the leader of the other party has said, and then you have the propaganda from the other party criticizing uh, the leader of that other party for things they have said, and they're at one another constantly, constantly. If we woke up tomorrow morning and uh, we got the shock of our lives and we find out that the UCP and the NDP have united, we'd wonder what was going on, and they're going to go into government together and there's going to be one party. What were the last few weeks and all this propaganda and all this uh, being at each other? What was it all about? What was it all for? It would be a marvelous thing, perhaps. Maybe not in regard to some of the policies, but 
maybe a marvelous thing to see this coming together, and it doesn't happen very often. But when we think of ourselves, the division, the gulf between us and God is far greater than the differences between any political party or any nation in this world. Far greater, because not only are there, not only is that a physical difference when we speak about this world, but the the disagreement between us and God, the division between us and God, is a spiritual division. God is holy, and God is righteous, and we, as His creation, have sinned against Him. Sin has caused this gulf. Sin has caused this division. Our sins, as the Word of God tells us in Isaiah 59 verse 2, our sins, our iniquities, your iniquities, Isaiah says, have separated between you and your God. And what does sin do? It causes a separation, a separation. And therefore, the the coming together of the sinner and God, the sinner coming nigh to God is a miracle, is a miracle. Because the sinner does not deserve to come near to God. The sinner cannot come near to God. The sinner cannot do anything within himself to bring himself to God, to God for salvation, because his iniquities have caused this separation, because God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is just. The Word of God tells us, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? In other words, if we neglect the salvation of Christ, there's nothing else for us. We cannot bridge that gap. We cannot save ourselves. It is only through Christ, as we see in Ephesians 2, verse 13. This gulf, this division, has been bridged, as it were, because of Christ. In verse 14, it says, For He is our peace. This is what reconciliation is, the peace between two parties. He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Middle wall of partition. I'm not sure if you know anything about walls of partition here in Canada. There was one in Berlin for many years. There's also been walls of partition in Northern Ireland between Protestant and Catholic areas over the years. And we can guess why the reason for those walls is to keep those apart who are divided. And there's a wall between us and God. This wall that the Lord Jesus Christ, through His gospel, through His death, has has broken down. He is our peace. He is our peace. He is our peace. And in being reconciled to God, these Ephesian believers are no more strangers and foreigners. Verse 19, they're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. When someone is made nigh to God, they enjoy the blessings that flow from that. Sanctification, adoption, access to the throne of grace and prayer, the forgiveness of sins. How wonderful, how marvelous. But this reconciliation is indispensable for you. Because if you are to be saved, 
If you are to be redeemed, if you are to be a child of God and to know your sins forgiven, you must be reconciled to God. It is indispensable. You cannot do without this. What if your sin this evening? What if the state of your soul? How do you stand before God? Is all well with you? Can you say, all is well with my soul? Christ is my Savior. He's broken down that little wall. He has taken me and brought me nigh to God through His sacrifice and through His death. He is my Savior and my Lord and my Master. Or perhaps this evening you... The truth is the opposite. Verse 12 applies to you. No hope and without God in this world. Oh, that you would see the indispensability of being reconciled to God, of being brought near to God. But secondly, I want you to consider that reconciliation is a merciful act. Reconciliation is a merciful act. In Ephesians 2 and those opening verses that we've considered before and mentioned this morning, we see our sin and our misery before God, and it culminates there in verse 12, as we've read already, having no hope and without God in this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it is only as we realize this, commenting on verse 12, it is only as we realize this, he said, in the first instance, that we shall realize how wonderful it is that anybody at all should be a Christian. How wonderful it is that you and I can be Christians, that any one of us should be a Christian because of our sin and our iniquity against the holy God of heaven. Oh, how wonderful the love of God is. Oh, the mercy of God. We see that in verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God in His grace, God in His mercy, has given the gift of faith. Not something that we deserve. If you went out this evening to the parking lot, you took a sledgehammer and other sorts of tools and absolutely trashed my car. It's not my wife's, it's not my car, it's my wife's car. Um, so don't do that because I'll be in trouble for even suggesting it. But if you went down and trashed the car, left it in little pieces, absolutely written off, this great destruction has taken place. Then I turned around and said, well, you don't have a car. You need a car. And I went and I gave you the new car I'd bought as a free gift. You'd wonder, what is going on in his head? I've just destroyed his car and he's, he's given me a new one. That's what we see here for, to a far greater extent in verse 8 and verse 9. We see the great sin of man. We see his wickedness. He deserves the wrath of God. He's sinned against God. He's heading to God's eternity to face His wrath forever. And for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Oh, the mercy and the love and grace of God here, that we who deserve His wrath, and we have this marvelous gift of faith, not of works, nothing we can do, lest any man 
should boast. Paul said to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We can never bring ourselves nigh to God, but through Christ he brings us nigh. Oh, the mercy of it, the wonder of it. A gift, a glorious gift that you and I never deserved. We who are far off were brought nigh. We see His sufficient grace. We see His wondrous love toward us. Thomas Brooks the Puritan said, Mercies make a humble soul glad, but not proud. A humble soul is lowest when His mercies are highest. Nothing melts like mercy. Nothing draws like mercy. Nothing humbles like mercy. Dear believer, you and I, are here tonight because of the mercy of God. Sinner, the gospel call is extended to you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why? Because of the mercy of God. The psalmist prayed for the Lord's mercy. He said, Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Lamentations 3 and verse 22 tells us it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions feel not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. O believer, how marvelous that is. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It is of the Lord's mercies that we do not face the wrath that we deserve. Have you rejoiced in God's mercy? Have you rejoiced in God's grace toward you? Have you read through this chapter and rejoiced? Because now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are brought near by the blood of Christ, to paraphrase the text, reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. Oh, there is peace we can experience through Christ and through the mercy of of God. Have you experienced that mercy? Have you rejoiced in that mercy? When we think of the mercy of God, and as we saw this morning, the workmanship of Christ in us, are we merciful to others because God has been merciful to us? Oh, how hard we can sometimes be, how ungracious we can be, how unmerciful we can be, do we show such mercy to others on the basis that God showed us the greatest mercy of all? In that we who were far off and deservingly far off are brought nigh and reconciled to Him. Do we show such mercy to others? Thirdly, I want you to see that reconciliation is possible through a substitutionary act. Reconciliation is possible through a substitutionary act. The hymn writer said, Lord, through the blood of the Lamb that was slain, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. And what we see in this text is that ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is at work here. The sacrifice of Christ upon Calvary. The blood of Christ is an essential part of His work in the gospel, verse 7 tells us of chapter 1, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness 
of sins. And salvation is through Christ by the shedding of His blood. There is no other way to draw near to God. No other way to know our sins forgiven. Whatever idea you may have, that you can get right with God on your own terms. The Bible teaches salvation through the blood of Christ. Solely on the merit of our faith in Christ and in His work upon Calvary, made nigh through the sacrifice of another. And the work of Christ dear believer, was something that has changed us and something that has cleansed us. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God but through the blood of Christ. There is one God and one mediator, Paul said to Timothy, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. John Calvin said, the blood of Christ has taken away the enmity which existed between them and God from being enemies, hath made them sons. Oh, what a union there is because of Christ. John tells us in 1 John 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, brought nigh to God, brought near to Him, and called the sons of God. How marvelous, because of the blood. Because of the blood. The book of Hebrews tells us, without shedding of blood is no remission. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 about the precious blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We're not redeemed through silver or gold, through these things that are corruptible, but through the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And this blood, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ upon Calvary, brings sinners nigh to God. Oh, we should rejoice in Calvary. We should rejoice in what Christ has done for us. We should rejoice in the precious blood that was shed for sinners because we have reconciliation because Christ died in our place. Because Christ died in our place. Tonight, dear unbeliever, what about you? Have you had this reconciliation to God through the blood? Through the blood of His Son? Do you know the cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb? Oh, that you would turn from sin. Again, Ephesians 2 speaks about you being dead in sin, but through God there is life, through Christ, and through the shedding of His precious blood. He reconciles the sinner. No matter how old or how young you may be, He he reconciles. I've told you before, I was a young boy, four years of age, and I remember very clearly having a concern for my soul. I was brought up in a Christian home. I remember as a young child learning verses of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, the verse 8, it was one of the very first verses that I was taught as a young boy. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I remember in a shop that my parents worked in, there was a man there who owned the store. He was a believer, and it was a, it was a children's clothes shop, something that didn't really interest me. If it had been a toy shop, that would have been very, very different, uh, but it was a clothes shop. But I remember 
uh, he was a Christian, and he was asking me about different verses. Did I know this verse, John 3, 16? And did I know Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9? And by God's grace, I was, I was able to recite those verses. I think he was picking the easy ones for a child, of course. Uh, but I'd been taught these verses. I'd memorized these verses. Important verses that remind us very simply of how we can be saved through God's grace, through faith in Christ, cannot be achieved ourselves. At the age of four, I remember putting my faith and my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how young or how old, the blood of Christ cleanses from every stain and from every sin. Dear believer, make much of Christ. Make much of His sacrifice. Make much of His blood in whom we have redemption through His blood, brought nigh through His blood. And then finally, I want you to see the reconciliation must be a published act. Reconciliation must be a published act. We don't have this as such in our text. But in a way, we do have it in our text because the need of reconciliation is published and declared and recorded in our text. But the great work of Christ in bringing us nigh to Him, the great work of Christ in salvation must be published by us. Do I mean you go down to the printers and you ask for a 600-page volume to be printed of all your thoughts on Christ and the gospel? No. But published very simply in the sense of declaring, of telling, of telling abroad what Christ has done. We can think of the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We can think there in Mark 5 of the demoniac of Gadara, this man who was mad, and who Christ cast the demons out of, the devils out of. And he came to the Savior and he said that he wanted to follow him. And the Savior said, go home to thy friends. He refused this man to come with him, but he said, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Christ had a purpose for this man. He was saved and delivered in a wonderful way. His life before was the talk of the town, we could say. A man who was at the lowest point in life because of his sin. Christ had changed him. Christ had redeemed him. Christ had cast out the devil. This man wanted to be with Christ, and Christ said, no, go home to thy friends. Be a witness. Tell others. Tell them what Christ has done. Tell them what I have done. Tell them the great things the Lord has done. And that word tell, it means report. Report. Basically declaring or showing what Christ had done and this man's whole life. The great change because of Christ. Testify to the world Something had changed here. This man who was mad, this man who was 
living in sin, and this man who is at the lowest point in life, what has happened to him? What has happened to him? All because of Christ. And Christ said, go tell. He didn't say, go and stand in the street, spend hours preparing the sermon, stand up in the street and preach that sermon. And yes, we, we are to do that. And preachers are to do that. But this man wasn't sent to be a preacher in the sense that we see preaching. That word tell means report. He was simply to tell of what Christ had done. He was to testify. He was to declare what the Savior did in his life. And dear believer, at the very lowest basic level of what we can do for Christ, reporting, declaring, telling others about what Christ has done for us, telling others about what our sin was, and telling others about our wickedness and how Christ came and dealt with us and how Christ delivered us. Is that not something that we can all do? Is that not perhaps, yes, it can be difficult telling certain individuals, but is that not something that is much, much easier to do than standing and preaching in the sense that we understand preaching today? It's a simple thing simply telling what Christ has done. I remember six years of age, standing in a pulpit in one of our churches in Northern Ireland, a Sunday school was taking part, and I was asked to testify and say how the Lord had saved me. And I remember standing there. There's absolutely no way six years old you should preach. Definitely not. Um, certainly, we don't agree with that. But even at six, there's an inability but you could simply stand and say how Christ had saved, how you sought the Lord, how the Lord had saved you. I remember I had notes. My mother's handwriting was terrible and because I got lost halfway through the notes. I thought, well, I'll look up. And I looked up at the congregation. I've been told to look up. Don't just sit here and, and read everything, but, but look up. And I looked up and looked down, and I lost my place. And I was there. I don't know how long it was, 10, 20 seconds, trying to find my place. I remember uh, the uh, late Reverend Ken Elliott coming up and looking over my shoulder and seeing what he could do. I don't think he could read my mother's writing uh, as well, uh, but uh, I eventually found my place as he was looking over my shoulder, and I started off like a train and didn't stop, uh, so I'm told. Uh, but I remember simply doing that. That is something we can simply do, telling others, asking God for grace and help, publishing. And why should we publish? Scripture tells us about those who published. This man published the great things that Christ had done. Men marveled. Psalm 22 speaks about declaring thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Psalm 66, come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Psalm 145 tells us, one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. And we can go on and on. Scripture tells us to declare and to preach and to tell others and to tell the next generation of what Christ has done. And why is that so important? Because of what reconciliation is. It's a blessed thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a marvelous thing that 
Christ has done for our souls. We should rejoice in it, and we should be compelled to tell others what Christ has done. Dear believer, do you have that desire today because of the joy of Christ within your heart to tell your friends, to sit in your family and to lead your family in telling them what Christ has done for you and what Christ can do for them? Telling those work colleagues, seeking the Lord for grace and help to tell those who may be antagonistic toward the gospel, those who may have other beliefs completely alien to the Word of God? Do you seek to tell others? Do you have a burden for others? And when we think of the wonder of what Christ has done for us, this great work of reconciliation, saving us and redeeming us who were dead, working within us as we saw this morning, Oh, how we should desire to publish abroad the name of Christ for His wonder, for His grace toward us. Yes, we can tell, we can support those who do evangelize. We can pray for our missionaries. We can pray for our ministers. We can pray for the gospel as it is on the radio. Praying for those who are working to evangelize. We may never go and speak to people who will hear the Word of God on the radio. We may never go to some of these places where we have mission works. In Jamaica, the works in Mexico City, for example, we may never go there. We may never have the opportunity to witness to those people ourselves. We can witness here, but we can pray for those who do. We can support the work of the gospel because of reconciliation. This world needs to be reconciled to God. This world needs the gospel. Let us work, let us endeavor to that end. And that reconciliation is possible because of the blood of Christ. Dear believer, as we close, do we realize the great privilege we have, the great privilege of being a believer, of being a Christian, the great privilege of God in His grace redeeming us and bringing us nigh. Let us glory. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us glory in Christ for what He has done for us. Let us see the preciousness of Christ. Unto you, therefore, which believe, He is precious, Peter said. And as Robert Murray McShane wrote, when this passing world is done, when is sunk yon radiant sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. May we rejoice in Christ for all that He has done for us. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy word this evening. We thank Thee for Thy truth, for this reminder of Thy so great salvation. A reminder of what Christ, our Savior, has done for us. Father, bless it to us. May we have that joy within our hearts. We pray for those outside of Christ, that I would speak to them. That I would be pleased to draw them to Thyself, that they too would be brought near to the Savior, reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. Father, we pray that Thou would meet our needs this week. Be with us, we pray. 
We ask Thee that Thou would be pleased to take us to our homes in safety. May the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with us both now and forevermore.